This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Thomas McGuane's story, Ice. I meant to learn courage out on the ice, to avoid the specter of cowardice by skating all the way either to Canada or, if the icebreaker had been through, to the Livingston Ship Channel. The story was chosen by Rick Bass, whose story Elk appeared in the magazine in 1997. Bass's fourth novel, All the Land to Hold Us, was published in August by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He joins me from a studio in Missoula, Montana. Hi, Rick. Hey, how are you? Good. So you and Tom McGuane are friends, right? How did you first meet? Was it through your writing, or are you neighbors in Montana? When we met, he was down in Mississippi, where he uh, has family. Uh, I was living in Mississippi at the time, and frequenting a, a shared bookstore, uh, Lemuria, that we were devoted to. And, and uh, just mutual friends uh, ended up having the same publisher for my nonfiction that he had. So just, you know, small circles. Was he supportive of your writing? Was oh, he my in? God, beyond supportive. He, he was so sweet. And at a time when a writer most needs it, a few kind words to somebody, you know, living kind of in the outback, that's like four years of, of, of schooling to, <laughs> to have somebody say, uh, hey, I read that, I liked it, keep it up. Had you known his work before you met him? I had, again, through the bookstore that really hand-sold uh, his work, uh, Jim Harrison's work, and, of course, all the Southern writers, Barry Hanna and, and, and all of his predecessors, uh, for sure. And it, had it been important to you in your own writing development? When you think of somebody, you know, helping or influencing you, you think of picking up on their style and such, and, and you know, there's just nobody who's going to touch Tom doing <laughs> what he does. And, and so technically no comma, but yes, uh, if you know what I mean. What would you say is sort of the most unique thing about that style of his? He just uh, demands a little more of the brain. Uh, his words are a little longer. His sentences are a little longer. The very subtle, intricate nuances of, of tone and attitude that one is exposed to over the course of a single sentence is, is, is kind of taxing. It requires a lot. People who aren't familiar with his work, I'm not exactly doing a very good job of selling it here. <laughs> well, um, sometimes those surprises that stop you are actually very funny. He's wicked funny. And it's like, I think what he does sometimes is like this triple psychological, you know, reversal thing where he starts being funny and he knows, okay, don't be funny. And he comes back to serious, but they just can't help himself. And then he's funny again. <laughs> and he thinks, oh, wait, funny's easy. And he comes back to something heartbreaking or ironic or what, but he's everything in one sentence, and, but not jarringly, not disruptively. It's it's a very fluid, graceful, uh, powerful expression of, you know, one writer's big, big mind. You know, it's not incurious to me that he races cutting horses, you know, where, where you have to make these split-second decisions and, and reactions uh, and make it not appear, but make it be fluid. I think his brain is wired for, uh, you know, a multiplicity of emotions and meaning. And do you see that, that multiplicity in, in this story in Ice? Oh, I do. It just kills me how much of it's there. It, it's gorgeous. It's lovely. Uh, you know, I, I love these podcasts. I'm so thrilled to uh, to get to read one, but I'd really urge uh, listeners to to also read the story, you know, on the, on the page as well. You know, it's an easy pun to say that there's so much beneath the surface in, in the story ice, but it is like those bubbles caught in the ice. There's a lot of stuff in every sentence. Do you think that there's anything in particular people should listen for as you read? There's some weird stuff going on with uh, the narrator's perceptions. Things seem to be a certain way, or the narrator believes certain things, or the narrator uh, suspects things. And, and, and that, that ambivalence uh, that is perhaps the seat of the perceived cowardice uh, 
is 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 not really spoken of in the in the story ever. But uh, you know, the difference between courage and confidence, or or cowardice and confidence, is is I think uh, the internal struggle of the narrator. Well, we'll talk more in depth about that later. And now here's Rick Bass reading Ice by Thomas McGuane. The drum major lived a short distance from our house and could sometimes be seen sitting pensively on his porch wearing his shako, a tall cylinder of white fake fur, the strap across his chin, folding the free press for his paper route. I was reluctant to so much as wave to him, since this was a time when my greatest concern, originating I don't know where, was that I was a hopeless coward. Although we saw each other every day at school, any greeting I sent his way fell on deaf ears, and I had long since given up getting any sort of response at all, a situation said to have begun when he scored 156 on the school-administered IQ test. I had the route for the news, so it was unremarkable that we didn't speak. When, one Thanksgiving, he single-handedly captured an AWOL sailor and escorted him to the brig at the nearby base, I began to study him in the hope he held the key to escaping my cowardice. I delivered papers in the evening and, as the year grew late, was often overtaken on my bicycle by darkness and by fear. I flung my rolled papers toward porches and stoops and onto lawns, and I was sometimes pursued by dogs, once taken down in an explosion of snow and bicycle wheels by a wolfish Irish setter. I had a recurrent fantasy of a muscular ostrich pursuing me into the dark and pecking down through my skull into my brain, another of several fears stemming from my single childhood trip to the zoo. I always delivered my papers as promptly as possible. The drum major delivered his whenever he felt inclined to do so. One afternoon in early October, he unexpectedly chose to address me. He accused me of making him look bad by getting my papers onto people's porches and lawns before his. When I tried to respond, he cut me off and directed me to wait until his papers had been delivered before delivering mine. I complied with his instructions, tossing my papers onto lawns at all hours and dodging any customers who tried to complain. I went to great lengths to observe the drum major practice on the big wind-blown and sometimes snow-blown football field where he would strut toward the goalpost, trailing a stingy cape, the gray wintry lake just beyond, twirling his baton, the white shako tilted back arrogantly, culminating in the blissful high toss and recapture of the spinning chrome-plated baton, preferably without getting beamed by one of its white rubber ends. At actual game time, when he was leading our cacophonous marching band in disordered frenzy, the entire drama depended on his actually catching the baton so that what was meant to accent a larger spectacle became the focal point of an otherwise lurching rigmarole. There was something about the drum major's haughty gait and his seeming disconnection from the confused uproar of the band behind him that mesmerized me, although the band, with its modest and unattractive demeanor, the players wore threadbare maroon uniforms with gold piping and were led by a hugely overweight youngster who did a grambling-style shimmy while flogging his glockenspiel with felt hammers, was more attractive to the rest of the crowd, some members of which threw horse chestnuts at the drum major, whom they regarded as stuck up. 
What lay behind this behavior? I think drum majors were about to be replaced by majorettes, and what had once been honorably athletic had become effete and clouded with some unspoken sexual ambiguity, however inappropriate with reference to our own drum major, all of whose pert and blossoming girlfriends seemed to wind up losing their reputations. Nevertheless, the crowd hoped for a humiliating disaster. I, strangely, hoped for his success. I waited for that high toss to produce, as though by the hand of Praxiteles, the most graceful division of space, a split second of immortality for the drum major and for me a lesson in courage. At the same time, another part of me shared the crowd's unspoken wish to see the drum major on all fours with the baton up his behind or wrapped around his neck. As would become habitual for most of us, we wanted either spectacular achievement or mortifying failure, one or the other. Neither of these things, we were discreetly certain, would ever come to us. We'd be allowed the frictionless lives of the meek. Our school played Flat Rock on the last Saturday of October, when winter was already in the air, the trees shabby with half-shed leaves. I was shivering in the crowd on the rickety, exposed bleachers, watching our band wheel onto the field. When the drum major at last tossed the baton in its high glitter, it fell so far behind him that he had to dash into the band to retrieve it. Too late. He was swept aside, forced to stand, hands on hips, until the musicians had passed, his baton on the ground bent like a pretzel. I admit that I joined the baying crowd, our community. As he bent to pick up his bit of wreckage, we were beside ourselves. In that uproar, I was without fear. I thrilled to the courage of the mob. Still, it wasn't quite the courage I was looking for. The following week, the drum major seemed even more isolated at school, though, as always, he seemed to expect this. Mrs. Andrews, the beautiful young wife of our thuggish football coach who had given up her own remarkable athletic skills to teach us history, made a special effort to console him. I remember how gently she bent beside his desk to correct his work while, across the aisle, Stanley Peabody, with his flat top, pegged charcoal pants, and flag flyer blue suede shoes, attempted to see down her blouse. Mrs. Andrews, with shining auburn hair piled atop her head, a single strand of imitation pearls curling down from her throat, was accustomed to being ogled and seemed to know Stanley only by a quick glance at the roster taped to her desk. I was surprised by the attention she paid the drum major. From then on, I was a great student of any and all interactions between him and Mrs. Andrews, viewed as scarlet with erotic undertones and abetted by the smirking of the other boys. But their behavior was no more than a salute to Mrs. Andrews' lovely figure. One incident does stand out when, after long abstaining, Mrs. Andrews first called on the drum major in class. By now, I believed I sensed something quiet and subtle between the two of them. "'What?' she asked, looking straight over the top of his head of curly brown hair. "'Was the principal result of the credit mobilier scandal?' "'She seemed timid. "'Legs stretched in the aisle, crossed at the ankles, fingers laced behind his head. "'The drum major said, "'You tell me.' "'He gazed at her with quiet annoyance that seemed to intimate possession. "'We felt an electric silence.' 
and I thrilled to what I viewed as amorous badinage disguised as classwork. Mrs. Andrews' face colored to the roots of her auburn hair. Stanley Peabody peered broadly. His sidekick, Boley Cardwell, a prematurely wizened teen with lank blonde hair cascading over his forehead, grabbed his crotch surreptitiously and rolled his eyes in feigned ecstasy. Perhaps, she said, you feel I have asked you the wrong question. Could be. The drum major had the effectless James Dean look down pat. In that case, why don't you pose a question for the class based on this week's reading? He leaned forward, dropped his elbows to his knees, drew his feet back under the chair, and held his head for a moment before he looked up. He said, Who's buried in Grant's tomb? By the end of the day, he was the most important boy in school. People lingered to watch him pass in the hallway and gave him plenty of space at his locker. Mrs. Andrews added girls' physical education to her teaching load, and from then on she seemed always to have a whistle around her neck. She moved with a new formality even when teaching history. While Stanley Peabody and Boley Cardwell headed a small group that gathered in the bleachers to run wind sprints, the drum major sat apart, focusing on Mrs. Andrews. On co-ed gym days, her husband, Bud Andrews, was also on the field, coaching the boys, a classic phys ed instructor in sweats and a severe crew cut that bared the top of his scalp. One cold, dark afternoon when the windows of the gym were silver with reflected light and the air was sour with sweat, Coach Andrews suddenly sprang into the bleachers, lifted the drum major into the air, and shook him like a rag doll. The drum major managed to retain his smile, even as his head was flung about. Coach Andrews was briefly suspended, and the drum major was assigned a history tutor, though everyone agreed that Mrs. Andrews could hardly be blamed for her husband's freak-out. I spent my paper route earnings on small things— an imitation Civil War-era forage cap, a British commando knife, steel taps for my shoes, muskrat traps. I had gotten caught by some magazine coupon swindle, whereby I tried to win a baby monkey whose huge eyes dominated the advertisement. But when I fell behind in my payments and began to doubt if the monkey would ever be shipped, I switched schemes and wound up on an easier payment plan with a flying squirrel that bit me savagely and flew around our basement for two days before escaping through the window. My father said, Next time you've got ten bucks to spare, don't throw it away on a squirrel. My luck changed when, digging up a jack-in-the-pulpit as a gift for my mother, I discovered an old brass compass which I attributed to voyagers, Cours de Bois, Jesuits, Recollet, and their various bands of Potawatomis, Wyandots, and Hurons. Few facts came my way that could not be magnified. That compass was always in my pocket, an obvious talisman, the one thing that stood between me and the dreaded unknown. As a test, I went back to delivering my papers on time, but the drum major had forgotten all about me. In January, I skated out onto Lake Erie, which that year was frozen nearly to Canada. I stared at its ominous expanse. I left the shore one evening on my hockey skates, a wool cap pulled over my ears, and a long scarf wound around my neck and crisscrossed over my chest beneath my blue navy surplus pea jacket. 
I meant to learn courage out on the ice, to avoid the specter of cowardice by skating all the way either to Canada or, if the icebreaker had been through, to the Livingston Ship Channel. I struggled over the corrugations of the near-shore ice, then ventured onto glassier black ice that rewarded me with long glides between strokes of my hollow ground blades. Bubbles could be seen, and, occasionally, upended white bellies of perch and rock bass as the sheen of glare ice, wide as my limited horizon, spread east toward Ontario. I dreamed of landing on this foreign shore, from whence the redcoats once launched sorties against our colonial heroes. I would tell Mrs. Andrews what I had done. Reading school books had embittered me against the British and the American South, while my uncles handled the job for Germany and Japan. I meant to visit the old British fort at Amherstburg and skate home with tales of imperial ghosts and whatever other secret existences I might discover in places where no human is expected. Such dreams and the gathering darkness enlivened my skating, and I raced on, stroke after stroke, toward the hiding place of those who once sought to crush our revolution. I would one day see this as the template for many disasters I much later created for myself, but at the time, risking my life on the same days I worried about paper cuts or infected pimples produced no sense of contradiction. I felt only the allure of the hard, black, and perfect cold snap ice unblemished by wind during its formation. Impossible to imagine the drum major out here like some animated Q-tip, I gloated, no prancing among the crows and ice-killed fish. Except for those crows, I was alone out there, out of sight of land or, as I then called it, Michigan, though I knew land lay to the west by the pale sunset still faintly visible. That's how I thought of it. I can't see Michigan anymore. I believed that if I let coming darkness turn me back, I would never be any good, and the fog of cowardice would forever envelop me. The ice seemed to rise before me and disappear into the twilight as though they were one and the same. I had to slow down in case the ice came to an end. Lights that had shone briefly on the Michigan shore were gone now, and I had yet to see my first Canadian light or the outlines of the fort I'd imagined. I touched the old compass in my pocket. Then it was dark. When I stopped to reconnoiter, I felt the cold penetrate, and I adjusted my scarf. It was time to go home, I knew, but I couldn't leave this undone at the first wave of panic. I had to press on into the plain blackness long enough to prove that it was I who elected to return and not those forces determined to make me worthless in my own eyes. Such thoughts produced an oddly inflexible rhythm to my skating, by which I reached my feet through a distance I couldn't judge by sight until I contacted the hard floor of ice. Now the sound of my blades, which had seemed to fill the air around me, was replaced by another as murmurous as a church congregation heard from afar. I glided toward the sound, when suddenly a vast aggravation of noise and turbulence erupted as a storm of ducks took flight in front of me. It was water. I heard the ominous heave of the lake. I turned to skate straight away or not quite straight, because after some minutes of agitated effort I found myself at water's edge again, water sufficiently fraught that it had broken back the edges of ice, heaving it in layers upon itself. 
I skated away from that, too, and, when once more surrounded by darkness and standing squarely on black ice, I stopped and recognized that I was lost. I was suspended in darkness. A step in any direction, and I would drown in freezing water. The feeling of being completely lost was claustrophobic, like being locked in a windowless room. I had an incongruous sense of airlessness. It came to me that I was going to die. I lashed out first at my entangling fantasies, the hated redcoats especially, the pursuing ostrich, and then against death itself. My bowels began to churn, and I squatted on the ice with a pea jacket over my head, pants around my knees. I recited the Lord's Prayer in a quavering voice. And I was answered, a deep rhythmic throb that gathered slowly into a rumble. I stood and gazed into the darkness. As I pulled up and fastened my pants, a light emerged, followed by several others streaming toward me in a line. At the moment the sound was most intense, a black, all-consuming shape arose before me. It was not the god I expected— a lake freighter whose wake caused the ice to groan all around me, bound for Lake Superior. The light streamed away, and it was silent again. I extracted the compass from my pocket and began bargaining with death. If anyone was looking on, it would be clear that whatever benefits I might be entitled to would have to be channeled through the old instrument, in whose tremulous magnetic needle I had placed all my faith. It took some concentration to hold panic at bay and rotate the battered brass case until I had North pinned down. Then, staring down at the ornate W through the cloudy glass held just under my nose, I began to skate as rapidly as I could, moving fast on the cold mirror beneath me, creating my own wind, knowing that if the compass didn't work after its many years in the ground, I would skate straight off the ice into a world from which I would not return." Myopic faith kept me stooped over my cupped hands as I pressed on with all I had. The light of moon and stars was enough to see by if I'd known where I was going, and in a short time I could make out a half-dozen squarish shapes in my path, ice fishermen's shanties. There were several of these little villages in the area, and I tried to figure out which of them this might be. They were all quite similar— small houses placed over a round hole spudded through the ice through which the occupants could angle for perch or hang for hours, iron spear in hand, to await the great pike drawn to their hand-whittled wooden perch decoy. By night, the shacks were all deserted. But one shanty revealed a flickering light, and to it I attached all my hopes. At its door, I made out voices, and I stopped before knocking. They were voices from my classroom, and I listened as if dreaming to what sounded like a quarrel. First the drum major, cocky and bantering. The other seemed to plead and whimper, and was, of course, Mrs. Andrews. And then there were different sounds, less precise than words. I had no business knowing what I knew. I landed a long way from where I'd put on my skates and was obliged to traverse a considerable distance on my blades, tottering upon pickerel grass, water-rounded glass shards and pebbles, waving my arms around for balance while thanking everything around me for further days on earth. 
But in a scrap of tangled beech woods, these pious thoughts soon crumbled before my lurid new vision. Light from the small houses that line the narrow road to the shore made of my flailing progress wild shadows in the leafless trees. I heard dogs barking behind closed doors, and one homeowner let his beagle out while watching me from his porch. I tried to manage my movements, but I couldn't walk normally, nor could an observer see that I was wearing skates. The beagle approached to within ten feet and sat down, emitting a single reflexive bark as I passed his lawn. The owner remained on his porch and in silence watched me pass. I didn't go on the ice again that winter. It seemed there were better things to do. As the days grew longer, I often saw the drum major starting his paper route as I got home from mine. We didn't speak, but my customers got the news on time. That was Rick Bass reading Ice by Thomas McGuane. The story was published in the magazine in 2005 and is collected in Gallatin Canyon, which is published by Vintage. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Rick, before the reading, you were talking about how the sort of tone or perceptions of the narrator in this story are not always reliable or they shift. How does that play out in the story? The narrator is is a loner, is an isolate like the drum major. And I think what's going on with the narrator's uh, struggle is not so much that he's a coward, which is how I read it, read the story the first many times, but that he's not as brave as he'd like to be, which is he'd like to be considerably brave. Mm-hmm. But he, he thinks because he's not perfect, he's awful. Well, he doesn't ever really outline for us the ways in which he has failed to live up to his own notions of what he should be. Exactly. I mean, there's the ostrich dream, but that's that's a nightmare. You know, who wouldn't be terrified of that? <laughs> it's interesting to me that if you if you sort of break this story down, not very much actually happens you know, you have this boy who is fearful or who thinks he's fearful and he's somewhat intimidated by another boy who he thinks is fearless. And he goes out on the ice and, and goes for a skate <laughs> that's slightly dangerous. How is he different at the end than he was at the beginning? I think the narrator secured courage. He went out on the ice, looked for it, found it, and uh, with kind of a, a firm, almost bitter and grim resolve, held it within him ever after. Okay, I did that. I don't need to, to go back out. But that also was uncomfortable. I'm not going to go quite that far into courage again. I'm just going to get the papers delivered on time. But that's 
by God, I am going to do that. And, and, uh, so that, that, and that's a generous, uh, reading. And I think Tom, Mm -hmm. you know, with that secret sentence that set it up, the lurid new vision, I think, I think the writer Tom was very disappointed in the narrator's, uh, dissolution into the frictionless lives of the meek that were, you know, neither cowardly nor, nor brave. Uh, just that was the best he could do was deliver the papers. I think that was probably the, the ironic or sardonic or laconic, uh, version. But I, I mean, that was damn scary out on the ice. I'm, I, I, was very, <laughs> I was very proud of him and, and uh, proud of the narrator. Now you brought up that line towards the end where he comes back after skating and he says, my, my pious thoughts soon crumbled beneath the lurid new vision. <laughs> what, what is that lurid vision? I think the grotesqueness, the monstrosity of his little fears and his little desires, his, his extreme isolationism, his extreme loneliness, uh, just his extreme internal uh, artistic human estrangement from whatever it is humans are estranged from. You know, I mean, he's flapping these huge wild shadows again. He's a freak. He's, he's, he went out looking for something beautiful and returns a freak. With people staring at him and dogs barking at him. As, as began the story, you know, in the beginning it was the Irish setter. And I mean, what a, what a tame little dog, a little beagle in a, you know, suburban domestic lawn uttering a single reflexive bark, a humiliating step down from being taken down in a tangle of snow and, and bicycle wheels by a wolfish Irish setter. Well, it's something that's that's interesting to me. You you read the version of the story that appeared in in Tom's collection, Gallatin Canyon, which had been edited somewhat after the version that ran in the New Yorker. And in the New Yorker version, after that line about the lurid new vision, he had another line which said it was as if, as I conquered one fear, another had risen to take its place, even more daunting than the last. And that may spell things out too much, but even if it does, I'm not quite sure what that new fear is. You know, I think it has to refer to uh, Mrs. Andrews and, and the drum major. Uh, right, who the, the fear that they're going to find out that he knows, or uh, or maybe it's just a fear of having this sort of knowledge of the sexuality out there on the ice, you know. I think the latter. I think the latter. And, and I think you see Tom in this story almost like a, a running back, uh, you know, jitterbugging at the line of scrimmage, waiting and choosing a hole to go through, the hole that's supposed to open probing and testing, waiting to ascertain at the last second, should I take this route or this route? You see him do that, I think, several times in this story, and that's the sexuality is, is one of the uh, the gaps that he approaches and then slides back and away from and, and breaks it outside to stay on the on the subject of courage. And, and uh, yeah, a couple of times there'll be these, these, these sentences that seem to open a new landscape, a new territory, a new watershed that he could explore, and he instead he brings it back in more toward its center. It, it must be really interesting to uh, to be in his mind, uh, for him to be in his mind when he's doing it. <laughs> I think he's tempted by play a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, uh, I know he's also so capable of being quite serious and, and, and deep. And that must be uh, an unusual uh, combination to, to be responsible to in, in each paragraph transition. Well, to bring it back to the story, what do you make of the drum major? You know, this this boy idolizes him. He's he's sleeping with a beautiful teacher. He's mouthing off in the classroom. And yet when we see him from a different angle, he's always alone. Everyone's laughing at him because he can't catch the baton. He's being pushed out of the way by the band. What what do you think we are supposed to make of him? I don't I don't really think that he does yearn to be like the uh, drum major. I think uh he does believe that the drum major has courage, but uh 
It's almost as if the narrator is afraid that courage will isolate him further, that mm-hmm. the narrator's real fear is not of being a coward, but of being freakish and, and isolated and removed. You know, that clutching the talismans, the, I thought that was a really interesting mm-hmm. little paragraph. In such a short story, when you have a paragraph that goes into specificity, rarely is that specificity random. You know, it's, it's pretty heavily symbolic, and, and uh, obviously the compass is hugely so, but I, I think that the narrator was grasping for little points of attachment in, in, in the business, the process of being human and, and uh, an adolescent. Something to guide him. Right. Yeah, I guess that's what a drum major does, sure, with the disorganized frenzy, the, the uproar of the, the shabby band, I think. Uh, I think the narrator was afraid of the responsibility of courage. He wanted courage, but, but with regard to the drum major, he was afraid of becoming, finding himself, once he had courage, in a position such as the drum major, because that would be really lonely. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah, uh, there, there was the... Uh, admiring fine business with Mrs. Andrews. So, so I don't know. It's a t- do, you, what, do you have a read on it? What, what well, you, you know, I, I did ask Tom that question, and, and he gave me an enigmatic answer, which was, <laughs> <laughs> the drum major was a mysterious figure to me, practicing such stylized movements in all weather, a lonely but potent figure to whom I could attribute anything, as I have done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, got it. Okay. <laughs> <That's> a- <laughs> So, but he, he, you know, he did also say that this story for him is really about the scariness of adolescence, which is, which is what you're saying. And if I had to guess, I would say that the drum major with his, you know, advanced adult sexuality is, is emblematic of this sort of fear of growing up. Yeah. You know, he wants to be brave, but he doesn't want to be a grown up. Exactly. Yeah. And I think he was intelligent enough to know that that was... It was kind of a forced move in a design space. He knew that once he got courage, he was going to have to be grown up and eat. So the thing he wanted was going to take him away from the thing he wanted. But what's interesting is that he chooses this somewhat toned-down form of bravery, this I'm simply going to deliver my <laughs> newspapers on time, which is something, you know, that is just following the rules, really. But uh, he's not going to be intimidated. Exactly, yeah. He's going to draw a line, and he, and and if somebody comes across the line, he'll defend it, but... He's not going to go to all of that that energy of, of uh, uh, what's the word, forging his, his courage, renewing it daily. That, that incredible uh, sentence. Again, it's so, such a McGuinish sentence. Uh, at the end, I didn't go on the ice again that winter. It seemed there were better things to do. <laughs> I mean, what a heartbreaking sentence. Like what? You know, how, how can this be? He just mm-hmm. had this experience of a lifetime, and it seemed there were better things to do. I mean, that's... I just kind of skimmed over that. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> well, there there may have been. There are better things to do than, than trying in a false way to prove himself, I suppose. Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, good. Yeah. I hope that's, hope that's it. You brought up earlier this notion of his sort of unexpected juxtapositions within the same sentence, and I, I couldn't help thinking of those uh, two sentences near the beginning where he says... I waited for that high toss to produce, as if by mm. the hand of Praxiteles, the most graceful division of space, a split second of immortality for the drum major, and for me, a lesson in courage. At the same time, another part of me shared the crowd's wish to see him on all fours with the baton up his behind. Yeah. So that, for me, is sort of quintessentially Tom, the combination of this almost elegant sentence mm. and then this comically prosaic follow-up to it, and just the way he sticks those things together. Precisely. You know, he's like a, you know, a very highly bred animal, a cutting horse or a great 
bird dog that just slashes and, and just goes left and goes right and ends up wanting to do everything. It's kind of kind of gluttonous. It's wonderful. <laughs> and I like you, the idea of his gluttony. Yeah, there's no respect for register. He's just going to no, do it. No, no. In fact, you can you can almost not that there's a code or a decoder ring to reading Tom, but but you start going left, left, left. You know it's going to break back hard to the right pretty pretty quickly any any second. He's talked about sort of the notion of stripping his style down, you know, in recent years and kind of going in a straighter line. Have you noticed a change in his work in the last decade or so? Very, very much so. And 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 of course, there was a lot to uh, to strip down for for sure. Uh, it was it was always there. It's certainly there in, in an outside chance. And then again, you would see it in, in the collection to skin a cat. A short short story called Flight was the first story of his I read that had it so severely stripped down. But uh, I think he has more fun in that stripped down version and and uh it's good to see that he can still wind it up too and and throw heat when he wants to now a project that you've been working on involves uh traveling around and and yeah cooking dinner for writers who've who've been important to you have you made dinner for tom yet not yet he's he's fishing in august but we're we're on the books for sometime this fall maybe october and uh really looking forward to that i mean uh so many writers have been so important to me, uh, either with their support or also just, just living their lives, showing younger writers that they can do this. And so I'm, I want to go visit these, most of them are older, uh, these older writers and, and just say thank you and, and give them, you know, a ceremonial nurturing the way that they nurture me and introduce them to, to younger writers. Uh, I'll, I'll take a, a nonfiction or a fiction writer, depending on who I'm visiting and introduce the generation before me to the generation after me. And do you have a menu planned? No, I don't. Uh, I don't. I'm thinking maybe uh, a lot of game. Uh, Hungarian partridge are just such sweet little birds, and 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 they take you know great jams reductions. Uh, maybe some some kind of berry reduction. Uh, yeah, I think Hungarian partridge. You know, for an appetizer before, but for the meal itself, I don't know. You know, Tom's a big <laughs> Tom's a big bird hunter, and, and uh, you just can't do any better than a hun. That they're they're really good. You're making me hungry. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, Deborah. Really fun. Thank you. Rick Bass's most recent story collection, The Lives of Rocks, was published in 2006. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes Store, where you can download more than 70 previous fiction podcasts, including one in which Tom McWane reads a story by James Salter, and also subscribe to The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene Podcast. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com, and join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.